listening to the 123 show with me, Noreen Mir, on this Monday afternoon. Time is now 1.36. Let's kickstart the week uh, with a big topic. We're talking about higher education in China and its impact uh, here in Hong Kong. And we are super delighted to be joined in the studio by Professor Jerry Postiglione, Honorary Professor and Coordinator of the Consortium for Higher Education Research in Asia from the Faculty of Education at the University of Hong Kong. And he spent 39 years at the University of Hong Kong, only recently uh, retired as their chair professor. Welcome to the program, Professor Postiglione. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Noreen. It's a pleasure to be here. Actually, those 39 years, about three years were spent in Beijing and in the United States for year-long sabbaticals, but uh, pretty much I've been loyal to our university since I was appointed in September of 1981. Wow, did you expect to, to, to stay such a long time? I uh, arrived right after the normalization of relations between uh, China and the United States. And of course, my specialization was the uh, social and economic aspects of the education system. So it was a wonderful opportunity to be here at that time. And uh, I uh, have been quite engaged since then. Yeah. What did you study at university? I studied uh, the sociology and economics of education and uh, uh, comparative systems of higher education because I also, for example, next week I'll be in the Republic of Mongolia because they would like to upgrade their research universities and I spend time in Malaysia, South Korea soon and other parts of the region. So I have been able to uh, work with my counterparts, of, of course, uh, here at, in Hong Kong, which is a magnificent place to do academic work because we have a special uh, system with uh, academic freedom and institutional autonomy. So uh, it's wonderful to be here and to be here with you today to discuss this topic so far away. Yes, I was going to ask you, first of all, let's back up a little bit. For, for some of our listeners who may not know the, the higher education in, uh, system in China, how is it similar or, or different to the higher education system in Hong Kong? Well, it has become more similar over the years. There has been a, a an isomorphism across the world in terms of higher education systems they've become more and more similar as massification has taken place when countries had very elite systems of higher education they were highly reflective of particular situations their cultural heritage and so on and although that's still the case a university is an international institution and has to engage globally and just like global business these days uh, the universities have reflected that trend. So the difference in the systems, first of all, is size. Uh, Hong Kong has uh, about a handful of universities, but China has several thousand. And the, the scale of these institutions used to be on an average of two, 3,000 back in the early 1980s to 2,000 students. They're now up to 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000. Uh, there, the access rate is now nearing 50%, and when I arrived in Hong Kong, it was 2%. 
There are approximately 35 million students in higher education in China. And of course, uh, the system is closer to the U.S. system in, in the sense of a four-year bachelor's degree. Uh, the Hong Kong system up until, as you know, up until 2011 or 12, was more reflective of the traditional U.K. system with uh, the uh, three. Form 7 and, and also the three-year bachelor degree. Um, <clears throat> so that's a fundamental difference, of course. There are many others because of the particular uh, character of the two systems, which is very different. Uh, and uh, uh, so therefore, um, the question is, c can the systems uh, engage with one another, interact, build uh, in terms of student exchanges and, uh, and research projects and so on? And the, the systems globally are also very different. So Hong Kong, in a sense, uh, has only one uh, major advantage, I think, and, that, and that's an, an advantage of, of proximity and also the bilingual advantage in terms of most of us in Hong Kong can can deal with the the Chinese system and uh, can read the um, read much quicker what's happening in China and get a handle on events whereas our colleagues in uh, the United States or Europe Canada Australia who engage heavily with China these days uh, have uh, a little bit more of a distance to go in order to to get what we have. So we're in a, a, a quite advantageous position in studying higher education in China. I was going to say, when studying in China, do you have a standardized examination that puts you uh, in, in the universities like in Hong Kong as well? Yes, China does have, as I think most people are familiar with the so-called Gaokao, which is the National College and University Entrance Examination. It is still very resilient in terms of uh, a necessary condition uh, in order to get access to universities. The uh, system has tried to diversify, as we in Hong Kong have yeah. also done. As you remember, we had the uh, advanced level exam and the higher level exams as access to universities, but we have become uh, more... Um, uh, diverse in terms of the criteria. We look to see uh, what students have done as secondary school in secondary school in terms of, say, for example, some leadership capabilities or some social work activities, things that we would consider highly relevant to becoming a leader in the future. And these uh, work their way in. In China, you have to remember there's 1.4 billion people there. And if you tinker too much with the uh, access uh, to higher education, the legitimacy uh, of the system, the legitimacy of access can become questionable very quickly. So the Gaokao, the National College and University Entrance Examination, is still uh, the main uh, criteria. Of course, it's been revised over the years. It is no longer just a rote memorization type of exam. It does test analytical abilities and critical thinking skills in fact, uh, scholars at Stanford University have pointed out that the secondary students in China when they graduate have better critical thinking skills than those in the United States, although that decreases over the four years of university education. Mm. Let's go back to some of your research uh, in higher education in mainland China. What, what sparked it? How long ago did you start your research uh, on higher education in China? 
Well, I grew up in New York City, and that means a lot because I had students from China in my primary school, and uh, my secondary school is located in a place called Flushing, Queens, New York City, which is uh, a Chinese American um, uh, community. And uh, one of my professors was uh, uh, qu quite a leader in the field in the study of uh, social capital when I was a doctoral student. So uh, my interest began there. After arriving here, uh, my, uh, my research started out in the uh, basic education area because China was very poor at the time. 80% of the population was rural. Now only 50% uh, is rural, which is still a large part of the country. But I have moved the focus of my research from uh, basic education in rural areas to uh, junior secondary education. And then in the last decade or so, my focus has been on higher education. Two aspects. For me, the two things to do. One, you've got to get the bottom up to average. The students at the bottom in the country, you've got to get them up. And there are a number of ways to do that. The uh, other thing to do is get the average people to go way beyond average. Get them to innovate, get them to be pivotal to the economy and the society. So my research uh, uh, in those areas uh, on the top has been with the World Bank on the uh, creation of world-class universities. I'm a visiting uh, professor at Shanghai Jiao Tong University, which is the uh, place that has a uh, global uh, uh, rating system on uh, universities. And I'm also on the, on the um, council of the South China University of Science and Technology, which is a university on the way up. And will, uh, I believe, will eventually reach the world-class rankings. It's a new university. But my, the other part of my work is uh, on the bottom. Uh, getting uh, students in the Western region colleges and universities up to um, uh, get them employed, employment. So I've been working with the provincial governments in Gansu province and with in Yunnan province, as well as with the Ministry of Education in Beijing on the employment questions. These in the last few years on graduate employment. And China has some policies to handle that. Of course, at the top, it has the so-called 985 and double world-class policies to get the top universities and fields of study up to world-class ranking and above. And the, um, and the other policies are to to move toward application-oriented bachelor degrees and get colleges and universities to work more closely with business and industry, particularly in the western areas of China, and um, to have them share costs and, and to build internships so that students can uh, become employed. So I've been working with the Asian Development Bank on those projects as well as with uh, international NGOs like the Ford Foundation to look at uh, rural students and how they adjust when they finally get into top-tier elite universities. Of course, we in Hong Kong, we're all working on the Greater Bay Area research. And at the University of Hong Kong, we're, we're focusing on this in, uh, on various dimensions. And my colleagues and I are looking specifically at uh, the role of universities, not only in building high technology, but also in the issues of equity, because equity inequality is becoming a rather sharp issue uh, globally, of course, but particularly in China, in Hong Kong, as we know, the gap 
between the haves and have-nots has widened, and this could be a very um, a very dangerous trend. Uh, so uh, education is supposed to be an institution which provides opportunities for those that didn't have much when they started. So the, the making education equitable, higher education equitable, is important for the Great Bay Area as a whole. Um, so there are uh, policies and issues, many of them, uh, which have become important as China and other countries around the world, as at the turn of the century, have moved to massifying their systems of higher education. And they have to find ways to pay for that. And they have to keep costs low. And because uh, once costs go up, uh, the inequalities uh, uh, become intensified. And of course, China has maintained, at the government universities at least, the same tuition rate since about 1995. They haven't raised it. So in that sense, there is a, there's an equity. But on the other hand, the middle classes in the urban areas particularly have lots of uh, resources to help their children from preschool and, and to help them travel and get a broader view of the world, to, to give them other, as, other ways to, <laughs> to, to, add to, to their CV. So that's a major issue. The other issue, of course, is the uh, the issue of intellectual property, which has been critical, critically important in this, in this trade war, and we we're we're hoping to avoid uh, a, a sort of a binary a tech world and and a, and a and a bifurcated university system across the world. When looking at sort of uh, equality and equity, as you mentioned, are, are rural students and their families interested uh, in getting their children into tertiary education? Or is it a bit, or is it a bit of a vicious cycle that they, they want their children to start working and earning money to contribute to the family? Well, as you, as you probably know, China has uh, popularized basic education nine years. And in fact, like in Hong Kong, pretty much 12 years. Uh, particularly in the in the urban areas, so the there is a uh, without a doubt a demand on the part of rural families um, for a higher education beyond secondary school. Now the difference is, rural families look at higher education very much in terms of jobs uh, and employment. Urban families, particularly the middle class, are looking at higher education in terms of the status culture it could bring to their children. So when they get a job, they will have valuable social capital networks and the cultural capital in order to, to do well at interviews. So there is um, this urban-rural split, which is still uh, prominent if you look at the who attends what universities in China. Now, the government has tried to institute a quota policy it, it has always had advantages for ethnic minorities, but now for rural students from poor areas, they're uh, able to, some of them, uh, have an advantage in getting into the top tier universities. But your question is the right one. Do, do rural parents uh, want a higher education for, for their children? The question is what kind of education are they getting and uh, this is a critically important problem. You have half the population in China is rural, still half the population. So you take 1.4 billion people, you split it in half, 
And then that's quite a, a large yeah. number. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about perhaps the prestige uh, when it comes to mainland universities. I think in the nine, back in the 90s or even the last decade, there seems to be a real prestige to send your children overseas to the United States, to, to Australia, to, to the UK. Is that sort of, and that's sort of seen as a status thing for, for some, or sometimes they, they think that Hong Kong universities are too difficult to get into. Do parents here in Hong Kong um, consider sending their children to universities in China? Is there, uh, is, is there, is it prestigious? Well, in Hong Kong, if you, if we're focused on Hong Kong itself, in the 1980s, if you looked at the two universities, there were only two at that time, and you looked at the profile of students who entered the universities, there was a large sector of the population uh, in the universities that was from families who were either working class or small, uh, very small businesses. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that's changed a bit because society has become more prosperous. But uh, th that first generation in the 80s and, and 90s, and even before that, many of them were children of government uh, leaders, government officials, government leaders. As the 90s rolled around, uh, many of the uh, alumni of the top universities who were, who, who were in government began to send their children overseas um, for, a, for a more internationalized education. And uh, today, uh, so there is a, a, a different uh, take on, on the part uh, for many parents on their part in terms of deciding about higher education. Uh, whether to st have their children uh, stay in Hong Kong or go overseas. Of course, there is an option for them to study at the top-tier universities in the mainland. Uh, Hong Kong students do, no, do not have to take the mainland's national college and entrance examination, and they can get access to the so-called 211 universities, the top 100. But uh, uh, we, we haven't, I think, the tre I think there are going to be trends Perhaps uh, because of the uh, turmoil of the last uh, six months or so, that will have some effect on, on our system. For example, the number of students considering studying the mainland universities and the other way around. Exactly. We may not be getting the best students from the mainland as we had before. Uh, the other uh, issue is the recruitment of academic staff. We normally uh, are a very attractive system uh, for not only for overseas academics from leading countries and universities, but also for leading uh, academics who were from the Chinese mainland and studied overseas. Uh, for them, Hong Kong uh, is is an attractive, or was, and I hope is still is an attractive destination uh, to uh, launch a, a career. Uh, so it will probably take a little while for things to stabilize, but like other universities and university systems that have had such turmoil, Los Angeles or uh, Paris, uh, uh, they, it will snap back. But the question is, uh, how many uh, months or years will it take for them to uh, get their footing again? So the attraction of students from the mainland and academics from the mainland is hopefully not affected as much uh, in terms of the talent that could be brought into uh, this system and as well as this overseas academics who are considering coming here with their families uh, we we hope that that w they will also 
uh, view Hong Kong as uh, a um, place to launch their uh, academic careers. Well, let's let's bring up that last point that you mentioned uh, earlier about students uh, from the mainland coming to Hong Kong uh, to study as well. Do, do you see, will there be less students from the mainland studying in Hong Kong, or what are some of the impacts of that? Right. Uh, the answer to that's an easy one. There will not be a smaller number uh, than in the past. Uh, the question is, will we get what we have been getting in terms of the profile of students we would lo like to have here? Uh, I I would say, if I had to say yes or no, I think we we will still be recruiting the same number of students. Um, of course, we have a, a ceiling. Uh, if you're at UCLA or at Stanford, you can, and they have increased, or NYU or, or USC, they increase the number of students from the mainland that they recruit. And, uh, but we have a pretty much of a 10% ceiling. And when you have uh, oh, that's millions of students uh, there graduating every year from secondary school, um, probably oh, seven or eight million, I think we can, we can find a few thousand out of that group uh, who are uh, exceptional. Um, so that, that's uh, something that we're, we're looking at right now. And, and the, the trend will become clear in probably in the next year or so, yeah. We'll have to invite you back then to, to, to talk to, to see if your predictions uh, have come true. Finally, um, I, I do want to end, end on the note that do can Hong Kong follow the models uh, of higher education in China or should be vice versa? Is there a lot that Hong Kong can learn uh, from China or are they still sort of learning from Hong Kong or from the West? Well, uh, China has of course learned uh, a bit the universities in China their leaders come here we go there uh, we learn from each other but Hong Kong is a small system and China is a large system so of course China is going to be looking at the large systems like 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 the United States and the European Union uh, so there's there's a continual back and forth and universities change very very quickly so we have to um, we have to continue that trend and and that's been uh, something that uh, we'll continue to do in the years to come. Yeah, well, time time flies sure. indeed. Um, there's so much more to talk about. I feel like we're scratching the surface, uh, but it was so nice to, to see you once again, uh, Professor Jerry Postiglione from the University of Hong Kong, 39 years there, and uh, uh, now is the Honorary Professor and Coordinator of the Consortium for Higher Education Research in Asia from the Faculty of Education. And uh, many thanks indeed uh, for your time.